You guys can have a seat if you want. I think I just messed up the microphone. Hold on. No, we're good. Middle school, I got bad news. You got to stay in here. Sorry. Maybe you can ask your parents if you can play on their phone or something. You probably shouldn't do that. Two announcements. One, if you weren't here last week, we do this thing every Advent, these gift tags. What we're asking is for you to write something on this tag that only God can give you that you want for Christmas. So that's what we want. And we pray here every Tuesday from 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning. Y'all are all welcome to come. It's just drop in. You certainly don't have to stay the whole time. But we pray for these tags. You don't need to write your name on it. Uh, but every year uh, we see the Lord answer the things that people are asking. God's a good father. He doesn't just meet our needs, but he also gives us the desires of our hearts. So I want you to think about that. If you're watching online, we're glad you're here. You can uh, email in a request if you want, and we'll put that on a tag and we'll make it anonymous so that you can be prayed for uh, as well. Uh, second thing, uh, I mentioned last week we do a Christmas Eve offering every year, and we give all of that offering away. This year we're going to give to Must Ministries, Park Street Elementary School, uh, who's our partner in education, and then long-term missionaries, the missionaries that consider Stonebridge their home church are serving both here and overseas. This morning we have a, a brief video from Must. They can describe what they're doing better than I can. And so I want you to watch this. And as you're watching, you could just uh, maybe even begin to ask the Lord how we would have you uh, contribute to what they're doing uh, this December. of wrapping services around an individual that has fallen down to help them rebuild their lives. We can literally take you off of the streets, put you in a home, provide you with furniture, fill your cupboards, give you clothing for you and your children, and also help you get a job. And that further promotes the sustainability in your life that you won't have to come back to us again for help. Must Ministries broke ground on a new homeless shelter and consolidated campus with a goal of completion in our 50th year of devoted service. Churches have been invaluable to Must Ministry and help us to be able to carry out Christ's call, which for us is to serve our neighbors in need. The way that churches can help is helping us to be able to dedicate and to be able to furnish the rooms that families are going to be utilizing. You'll be able to provide things like beds, a nightstand, a footlocker, to be able to create an environment where our clients feel safe and secure. And I want to thank all of you churches for helping us to be able to help our clients be able to have truly a future that has hope at its center. Please give. It will change thousands of lives and it will bless yours. That's good. So as Ike said, uh, the Christmas Eve offering, what they're asking from churches is to give money and that's going to help furnish uh, the, the rooms, help furnish the beds. Uh, they've got, I think, 136 permanent beds and then maybe around 50 or so temporary beds that they roll out when they are either overcrowded or when it gets, uh, gets really cold and we want to help them furnish all of those rooms. So uh, again, you can give on Christmas Eve. You don't need to designate anything to must. We're going to We'll take all the money and we'll divide it among those three, um, those three uh, organizations. If you won't be here on Christmas Eve, uh, or if you just prefer, you can give early. There's a drop-down menu on uh, our website, and you can give to the Christmas Eve offering. All right, 
Isaiah 11. That's what we're going to look at. The Hines read us that passage earlier uh, today. We're going to look at it briefly. Advents of four weeks leading up to Jesus' birth where we prepare, uh, leading up to Christmas where we prepare for Jesus' birth. And the Jews prepared for the coming of the Messiah for hundreds of years. Uh, there were these hints and clues in the Old Testament contained in these Old Testament prophecies that gave some, some sense of who the Messiah would be. And so the Jews, they studied those. And they were looking for the one who would fulfill those prophecies. And we're going to do the same thing. We're looking at a, a, a prophecy a week. Uh, last week we looked at the prophecy from Isaiah 9 that the Messiah would be called the Prince of Peace. That is one who would defeat Israel's enemies and secure Israel's borders. And we said, Jesus did that, just not in the way that they were expecting. Jesus did defeat Israel's enemies, actually defeated all the enemies of humanity, the true enemies. Not political enemies, not national enemies, but sin and Satan and death. And Jesus did secure Israel's borders and just not the way they were thinking. Not her physical borders, but the borders for her and for all of us, an inheritance. Abundant life with God forever as his sons and daughters. And because Jesus is our Prince of Peace, we said we could live free from worry and from anxiety. Today we're going to look at another title, another prophecy, that the Messiah would be the Son of David. That's the phrase, the Son of David. That the Messiah would be the Son of David. This goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. God makes a promise to David and says, you're always going to have a descendant on the throne. You're always going to have a descendant, so a son. You're always going to have a son on the throne. That was fulfilled literally for about 400 years. So David's son Solomon succeeds him, and he sits on the throne. At Solomon's death, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. The northern ten tribes become the nation of Israel. The southern two tribes become the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, they reject Davidic leadership. They find a new king. His name's Jeroboam. They start a new line, and every one of their kings is awful, and their nation is destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom maintains Davidic leadership, and a descendant of David sits on the throne for about 350 years after Solomon. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom, Judah, and they deport Zedekiah, who is the last descendant of David, to sit on the throne. And and during that period of exile, we've been talking about that time in captivity. Uh, it's the backdrop for what we've been looking at in Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah. During that time in captivity, there were some who said, God's, he's, he's, that, that promise is no longer valid. God's, he's done with David, one of David's descendants on the throne. They would say God broke that promise or that the Israelites forfeited that promise because of their own disobedience. But there were others who said, no, it's just suspended. And God sent prophets to the exiles during those 70 years to encourage them. And they began to speak about a future Davidic king. And so the, the phrase is a Davidic Messiah. A Messiah who would be from the family of David and who would rule like David did. And so the Jews began to develop this idea of a Davidic Messiah during that time in captivity. During those years when they didn't have a, a, a descendant of David sitting on a literal throne in Judah. They began to get a picture of a Messiah who, who God would send in the future. And the most uh, famous passage is Isaiah 11 that you heard 
uh, from Zach and Emily this morning, this idea that there be a branch from David's family who God would raise up. So just a few of those verses to remind you. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. That's who the Jews were looking for when they were thinking a descendant of David. They were looking for a guy like that who would be that kind of a king. During the time of Jesus, fast forward many hundreds of years, that same expectation, it's still floating in the air. The Jews are still looking for a Davidic Messiah. There's, in John 7, there's a debate among the crowd. Is Jesus the Messiah? And there's some are saying, well, no, he's from Galilee. That's Jesus' hometown. He's from Galilee. And doesn't the Old Testament tell us that the Messiah will be from the family of David and be born in the city of David, that is in Bethlehem? And this guy's from Galilee, so he can't be the Messiah. They were still looking for the son of David. So does Jesus fit the bill? Was Jesus a descendant of David? Matthew and and Luke both make a, a point to say, absolutely. Those long genealogies that you skip when you're reading Matthew and Luke. Part of the reason they're in there, if you go back and look, you'll see David's name because they want you to see he's, Jesus is part of his family tree. Matthew says explicitly, Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. You'll see David's name and you trace down and you'll find Jesus' name. The Christmas story that we all love, Luke 2. During that time, there was a census that was taken. And so everybody had to go to their hometown and register. And Joseph, Jesus' adopted dad, Joseph, being from the family in the line of David, goes to Bethlehem, the city of David. And he brings with him the woman who's pledged to be his wife. We know her to be Mary. And she's pregnant. And during the time that they are there in Bethlehem, Mary gives birth to a son, Jesus. Jesus is from the family of David. He was born in the city of David. He's a descendant of David. But David had tons of descendants who were never kings. Hundreds of sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-great-grandsons all the way down who were never kings. So what about Jesus? Was he the king? Was Jesus the king? During his time on earth, Jesus got mixed reviews. But there were absolutely people who saw him as the king. You see it especially during the last week of his life. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, we, we call it Palm Sunday the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. This is what the crowds say about him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They, they, they see him as the king. Now he disappoints them. And within a few days they're saying kill him. But in that moment on that Palm Sunday, they're saying this, he's it. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. It's very interesting if you read John 19, Pilate. In Jesus, uh, Pilate, uh, ultimately Jesus is convicted of treason. And so Pilate has this notice uh, printed up. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he 
put, hangs that on the cross. That's the charge that Jesus was found guilty of. And the religious leaders come up to Pilate and say, make it say that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. It's, it's an interesting statement. There's no indication that Pilate ever has any faith in Jesus, but he sees something in him. He recognizes something, and he's willing to call him the king of the Jews. Most important for us is that Jesus said he was the king. Again, that, that triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday, Jesus deliberately fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. See, Israel, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. There's, we never see anywhere else in the Gospels Jesus ever riding a donkey. But before he enters Jerusalem, he says to a couple of his disciples, go get me a donkey. And he rides in knowing what he's doing. He's saying when he gets on that donkey and rides into Jerusalem on Passover week, what he's saying is, I'm the king. I'm the son of David that you've been looking for. But as is all things with Jesus, he doesn't meet the expectations of anybody. He is the son of David. He's from David's family, but not in the way that people thought. And he's a king, but not in the way that people thought. Also during the last week of his life, Jesus has a conversation with the religious leaders. And he says to them, Who do you, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, David's son. And Jesus says, well, how come in Psalm 110.1, David says this, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Father, says to my Lord, uh, you're going to sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can David call the Messiah his Lord if the Messiah is a son of David? And the religious leaders didn't have any response. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a son of David, but not in the way that you think. I'm greater than him. And then for us, most importantly this morning, Jesus redefines what it means to be a king. So for uh, hundreds of years in the land, the promised land, the Jews didn't have a king. God was their king. And then in 1 Samuel, the Jews start asking for a king. And God sends them Samuel, a prophet, who says, you don't really want that. Yes, we do. No, you don't. And then Samuel says, well, here's what God says to king. Here's what kind of king you're going to get. This is what kings do. And in 1 Samuel 8, there's this list. I think it starts in verse 12, verse 12 through 17, somewhere in there. Samuel is describing a typical king. This is what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons and he's going to make them serve in his army and make them work in his fields. And he's going to take your daughters and he's going to make them work in the kitchen and make perfume for him. And he's going to take the best of your land and give it to his attendants. And he's going to take the best of your crops and use it for himself and the best of your livestock and use that for himself. And you're going to be enslaved to him. The king's going to be a burden to you. And as you read through First and Second Kings, even the best of them, it's a burden on the people to support a royal household. And the people say, we don't care. That, that's the kind of king that we want. Jesus never uses the title son of David. He never applies that to himself. It's hardly used in the New Testament at all. Just 11 times, and almost all of those are in Matthew. Jesus never applies it to himself, I think, because he doesn't want anybody to get the wrong idea. He doesn't want them thinking 1 Samuel 8 king when they're thinking about him. And I actually think he doesn't even want them thinking David, even though David was, he's the, he's the best example we have of an earthly king in the Old Testament. I think Jesus doesn't even want them thinking that. If that means you think I'm going to go kill Goliath, you think I'm going to get a sword and I'm going to attack all of our enemies and 
I'm going to reestablish this, the, the physical boundaries of this nation. So Jesus never uses that title for himself. And again, it's only used 11 times in all of the New Testament, most of them in Matthew. And what's interesting to me, I want you, if you have time this week, I want you to go back and read three stories in Matthew, one in Matthew 9, one in Matthew 15, and one in Matthew 21. There's three stories where five people say to Jesus, son of David, they address him that way. The only times in the Bible we see him addressed that way. They're parallel stories in Mark and Luke, but Matthew has all three. Matthew 9, two blind men come to Jesus and say, Son of David, have mercy on us. They want to see. Matthew 15, a foreign woman comes to Jesus and her daughter's demon-possessed and suffering. And she says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Matthew 21, two blind men, Jesus is walking by the road and they say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Three times Jesus is addressed Son of David by five different people. And they all ask for the same thing. They all ask for mercy. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not the kind of king who takes the resources of his people to build up his own house. He's the kind of king who uses his resources on behalf of his people. Mercy is one of those tricky words. We all know it when we see it. If I asked you to write a definition, you'd probably struggle Again, it's a word, we intuitively know mercy, but it's a hard word to define. The Bible has a couple of different understandings of mercy that are closely tied to one another. The one that we probably connect with the most or hear about the most is mercy as the other side of the grace coin. If grace is the good things that God gives to us that we do not deserve, the other side of that coin, mercy, that's God withholding from us, the judgment or the punishment that we do deserve. So mercy in that sense is almost a negative action. Mercy is Good Friday. God withholding from us the death that we deserve for our sin. Grace is Easter Sunday. God giving us eternal life. That's not necessarily what's going on in our three passages in Matthew. That's, that it's in there somewhere, but there's another understanding of mercy that I think comes to the surface, and it's mercy as a, as a kindness or a good expressed to someone in need. Think Good Samaritan. When Jesus hangs that lawyer on the story of the Good Samaritan and he says, who was a neighbor? The lawyer says the one who had mercy on this man who'd been attacked on the middle of the road. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. That idea of expressing goodness or kindness to someone in need. There's an emotional component to that, to mercy. We would maybe say compassion might be a synonym that we would use. There's also a recognition of a, of a hierarchy in relationship. It's not, it's not peer-to-peer. It's not a relationship of equals. The one who's asking for mercy recognizes their need and they recognize the resources in the one to whom they're asking to meet that need, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a recognition of uh, these blind guys. I'm blind, that's my need, I can't meet it, and Jesus can. There's no levers that can be pulled, there's no angle that can be taken to get Jesus to respond. They just ask for mercy. In that, in that sense, mercy is, is, again, kind of bleeds towards grace. So we don't deserve it. It's the way God reaches out to us in our place of need with kindness and with goodness. So you already know where we're going this morning. 
Where do you need mercy? Where do you need mercy today? Where do you need God to express kindness and goodness to you? For many of us as adults, we've spent most of our life moving towards a place of independence. That's kind of what we mean by adulthood. Self-sufficiency. I can meet all of my needs and I can solve all of my problems. There's nothing wrong with being able to pay your own bills. But I do think that sense of independence can create an illusion that we actually don't need God's mercy. Maybe those rare times where you go to the doctor for a routine physical and you get the, the news that you have cancer. Some of your, your, your kids are old enough. They've, you know, some of you have kids who've you kind of left the reservation and no matter what you've said and what you've done, nothing has taken root. And in that moment, we recognize we need mercy. Or you go in for a routine review in December and you walk out with a pink slip and you don't have enough money to get through the month. And those kinds of crisis moments, sometimes we're, we're brought, we're reminded of the fact that we need God's mercy. But that's not, that's not every day for us. For most of us, day in and day out, we're pretty self-sufficient. We can take care of ourselves. We can meet our own needs. We can solve our own problems. And again, that can create an illusion. And that's all it is, is an illusion that we can live without God's mercy. Like if I were to ask you and say, if on Monday, if God just said for one day, I'm going to withdraw my mercy from you. And I said, what would your Monday look like? If your answer is anything other than a train wreck, then I don't know that you get it. And I, that's not condemning, that's just reality. Over the last year and a half or so, this is a prayer that's become a, a daily for me. God, I need your mercy. I'm recognizing as I get to 45 years old, I'm almost 46, I'm, I'm recognizing my own limitations that even as someone who's walked with Jesus for 30 plus years, I still struggle with my flesh. There are times where I still give in to temptation. There's still woundedness within me that leaks out and hurts other people. And if God is not merciful to me, it's not just bad for me, it's bad for everybody who's around me. I need his mercy. Are you aware of your need today? I'm a husband. That's one of my roles. Jesus asked me, says, love your wife the way I love you. Try as hard as I can. Want to do that as much as I can. But I know I'm not going to be able to. I'm not. Because I struggle with sin and my own brokenness, my own flesh. And so I can be arrogant, and I can be inconsiderate, and I cannot listen, and I can, walk my, I, can, I can push for my own way. I need God's mercy. And so I say, God, have mercy on me as a husband. I'm a dad. That's one of my roles. Don't exasperate your kids. Don't provoke them to anger. That's really it. Two commands. And I know as much as I want to and as hard as I try, it's not, it's not going to happen apart from the mercy of God. I'll be passive aggressive. I won't communicate well. I'll make an example of them or I'll try to live through them or whatever. God, I need mercy as a dad. I'm a boss. I have a staff. I'm not supposed to lord that over them, but I'm supposed to use my position to help our staff run fast. 
in the directions that God wants them to be, in the directions God wants them to go. But I know, apart from his mercy, I'll micromanage them. I'll throw them under the bus if it makes me look good. I'll be passive-aggressive in my communications with them. I'm a pastor. My responsibility is to shepherd the congregation as an under-shepherd, looking to Jesus, the chief shepherd. Apart from his mercy, I won't serve you. I'll use you to get where I want to go. All that's reality. That's not beating myself up. That's just a recognition that apart from the mercy of God, my life's a train wreck. And so is yours if you're connected to me. Do you know that you need his mercy on a daily basis? Not just here, but here. It's not about beating yourself up and thinking you're a worm. It's just looking at the reality that even as people who've walked with Jesus for years, and even as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, even as people who are growing daily to be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus, that we continue to struggle with our flesh, that we continue to give in to temptation from time to time, and that we're not completely healed, that our woundedness leaks out onto other people. That's just the reality of the human condition. Again, it's not downplaying what it is to be a new creation. It's not at all undermining the salvation that Jesus has given to us and what it means to be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. It's just a recognition that we're not there yet and we're not gonna get there until we die or he returns. And so we need his mercy. We need his kindness and his goodness because there's a gap. There's a gap. And some days we're aware of it and some days we aren't, but it's always there. There's a gap between what he's asking of us and what we can do. And so we ask for help. God, I need your mercy. Are you aware of that this morning? Do you know that you have a king? Jesus is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. He's greater than David. And he's a king. But he's not a king who came to be, to, to serve, but uh, excuse me, he's the king who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's a very different kind of king. He's not looking to see what you can give him. He's got all the resources that he needs. And if we ask, he's quick to respond. When you read those three stories this week, you'll notice Jesus, he played, that's not the right word. He plays with the folks just a little bit. He, he just, he's, he's wanting to tease out what's really in their heart. The guys, the first two in Matthew 9, they come to him and they say, son of David, have mercy on us. And he takes them inside and he says, do you, do you really think I can heal you? He wants to know, do you really think I can? And they say, yes. He says, let it be done as according to your faith. This Canaanite woman who comes to him, she's a foreigner. This is one of those tough stories with Jesus. And he says to her after she says, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon possessed and is suffering much. He says to her, woman, it's not right to give the bread of the children to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. It has a different connotation than it does for us, but a dog's a dog. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And he says, I hadn't seen faith like this ever. Your daughter's gonna be healed. The two guys on the side of the road, son of David, have mercy on us. And everybody starts shushing them. 
And they just yell louder. There's this sense in all three stories of, are, are you going to take the step? Do you believe not just in the, in the ability of Jesus, but in the willingness of Jesus to dispense mercy? You got to have a sense of both of those things. That he's able to and that he's willing to. So as we close this morning, what kind of king is he to you? Is he the kind of king that you can ask for mercy? And who's not just able, but who desires to extend that kindness and that goodness to you in the place of your need? Let's pray. For some of you, the best thing for you to do over these next few minutes, we're just going to have some instrumental music playing over the speakers so you can have some kind of quiet time with the Lord. For some of you, the best thing for you may to do would maybe just to stay in your seat and just ask the Lord, say, honestly, God, I don't really, I'm not really in touch with my need for mercy. And I just want you to show me. He's not going to ruin your life. But he will show you, and it may be a bit painful initially, but the long term is absolutely worth any initial pain. He's just showing you reality. He's not, he's not doing something to you. He's just allowing you to see what already is. So then you can respond accordingly. And again, it's not about you being squashed or feeling like you're a worm. You're precious in the sight of God. But you're not perfect. And we need His mercy. For others of you, you're keenly aware of where you need mercy. And we want to open this altar up to you and ask you and encourage you to come forward as an expression of that faith to say, Jesus, you're the son of David, and I know that you're able to and you're willing to. We'll put a hand on your back and we'll pray for you. You don't have to tell us what your need is, but we'll do that. And I would imagine that would be many of you. And then I'll come and I'll dismiss us in a minute. So Holy Spirit, I pray for every one of us, kids and students and adults, that you would lead us more deeply into the truth that Jesus is the son of David. Yes, he's from David's family, but he's greater than David. And for us this morning, yes, he's the king, but he's a different kind of king. He's the kind of king who didn't come to be served, but to serve, who delights in extending mercy, showing goodness and kindness to his people who were in need. So my prayer for every one of us, that you would make us aware of our neediness so then you can address those needs out of your love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys come forward, and I'll come back up and dis dismiss us in about three minutes. All right, I'm so glad you guys were able to join us. Um, this service, our second advent, um, the son of David, looking at who Jesus was. And, and I think... Honestly, I was, we were asking, God, 
what, what do you want us to share with those that are watching online? Uh, what is something that you would like to be able to, um, to give to them this morning? Um, and, and one thing was, was running for me, and then I'm going to let Judd real share as well this morning. Um, and it was this confession of needing mercy is always a, a direct um, attack against pride in our lives. And we see it throughout Scripture that God wants us to be able to have a humble heart to approach him, knowing who we are and who he is uh, and what he is able to. And so I think it's significant. Um, really, as you're thinking about ways that you need God's mercy this week, um, go go ahead and in times of prayer, go ahead and allow uh, your heart to God to show you where his places in your heart where there's also pride, where you're also a little bit resistant, a little bit holding back from saying, I don't know if I need God's mercy fully. Things that we tend to stand on pride in our lives. Um, yeah, just this, this idea of mercy, we need it absolutely every day. Uh, and so I hope today was, was an encouraging message for you. Jed, would you like to share with us? Sure. When, when David was talking, one of the things that stuck out to me was I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, where Paul was talking about how, he, how undeserving he was of God's mercy, how he was persecuting the church, and he was not doing anything Christian-wise, but God showed him mercy. You know, and then in verse 10, it talks about how, I mean, he did it because God had a plan for him. It wasn't because Paul was so wonderful or, you know, just this great guy, but God has a plan. I feel like God would encourage you today that he has a plan for you as well. You know, how far ahead you are, if you come to God asking for mercy, then Paul was being knocked off the horse. So I just encourage you, you know, God, God has plans for you and God will show you your mercy. Just come and ask. I mean, even as David talked about the people that crying out, you know, have mercy on me, son of God, you know, that cry out, you know, be, be humble like Matt was talking about and just, you know, accept God's mercy. He has lots in store for you. Yeah. So thanks, Judd. I'm going to be, I want to sink into that. I want you guys to, to spend time in, in prayer and really, um, before our father who, who wants to meet us where we need him and where our heart's desires really stays in line with where we're at with the birthday, um, which is in the name tags, um, the gift tags. We, we want to be able to correctly position who our God is, and he's a God who does give mercy. Uh, he's a God who does meet us in our greatest needs. Um, and so go ahead, spend time in prayer. You may want to now, you may want to do it a couple times throughout this week, but talk to God about where you need mercy in your life. So glad you guys were able to join us, and I uh, hope you guys have a great day.